Welcome to Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a lighthearted look at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Kat. I'm Rich. Do you like me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course I like you. As friends? Right, as friends. Just as friends? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, I hadn't really thought about, um, yes, why? No reason, I just, I think you're interesting and I'd like for us to be friends. Is that all right? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, you and me, we should be friends. In this episode, we're making dreams come true with 2009's era-defining 500 Days of Summer. Directed by Mark Webb with a screenplay written by Scott Neustader and Michael H. Webber, a critically acclaimed film starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel. It is unquestionably a project that has retrospectively divided opinion and we're determined to find out why. Bung some feist on the stereo, zip up that hoodie and pull up a barstool. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. We'll send you a greeting card containing a heartfelt line or two. If a double-decker bus crashes into us, you know the rest. If you're around in the early noughties, your relationship to films is quite interesting because this one, it shows how there's so much nostalgia and kind of um, longing for those movies that might have come out in the 80s where you want to kind of feel that euphoria that, you know, a really good John Hughes film or something like Dirty Dancing would give you. And, you know, you want to translate that into your adult life. But at the same time, following on from maybe the 90s with all of the big rom-coms that came with that decade, and we dealt with one in our last episode, we dealt with Sleeps in Seattle, there's also an element of you know, young people in the early noughties where they feel quite jaded, I think, and almost resentful about some of these uh, romantic comedies that have come before because it sold us a particular idea of what life was going to be like and how you'd pair up with people and be at a certain point in your life, maybe at the end of your 20s. And some of us won't necessarily have got to the place where we thought that we might have been at that point. And I think it deals with that kind of um, sort of conflict quite well. Are you suggesting that no one told us life was going to be this way? (laughs) Well, exactly. Exactly. You put your finger on it. The strange thing about this as well is that, um, I mean, I'd seen this all the way through not long after it came out and then sitting down again for this. This is probably the first time I'd watched it. I think I've seen bits. And, And even then there are parts of it where... You kind of think already, and I know we, we, we normally touch upon like how a film has aged or how a film would be different if it were made today. You know, some of it already, you know, when, when you look at the opening kind of blurb on the screen and it has, and it basically goes to bitch, it goes straight there. Like, this is already kind of written from a guy's point of view. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of elements to it that I think now, and maybe because we're a bit older and you can look and see that, maybe it is a little bit more nuanced than it, it was at the time, because at the time, you can kind of think this is a guy story. 
and it's yes. very very much about Tom and Tom's views and Tom's life and and how the relationship affects Tom. Whereas I think now, both as an older person and then we're on a pod about relationships, and this is a relationship that is very much a two sided one, and and it shows something that we don't often see in a romantic relationship, especially is that. Two people can be in the same relationship, coming into it from de- very different angles. Um, and the fact that Tom is the one who is kind of has these ideals of love and what he wants and what he expects. Uh, Summer isn't at all. She's very, you know, and that makes it clear from the beginning that she wants it to be casual. You don't say casual, but she, you know, she wants it something, see where it goes and all that, which is, you know, I mean, she states her case quite openly. But yeah, when, when you look at it now, some of the behaviours from both, to be fair, but from, from Tom especially, I mean, I wrote incel at one point. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a partly a, when he was talking to Mackenzie in the office about how mean a beautiful girl can be. I hear she's a bitch. Really? Yeah, Patel tried to talk to her in the copy room. She's totally not having maybe it. Maybe she was just in a hurry. And maybe she's an uppity better than everyone super skank. I know, she's pretty hot. That sucks. Why is it pretty girls think they can treat people like crap and get away with it? Centuries of reinforcement. <sighs> you know what? Screw her. I don't care. She wants to be that way. Fine. And they're treating like putting the putting the girl on a pedestal. And I know we've talked about that in previous episodes as well. But um, it's interesting to see a relationship, you know, from from his point of view. But it's very much a, a double double edged sword. You can read it in two different ways, I think. I think some people read it as thinking that the filmmaker doesn't necessarily know that Tom is coming across in that potentially kind of incel way. And I think there's a, a there's another argument, which is that that's completely conscious and that the film is trying to take inspiration from a movie like High Fidelity, which we've done on this podcast, and be a little bit more stark with how it shows you that, you know, sometimes someone is just coming at someone with a whole lot of expectation and is projecting onto them quite relentlessly their own wants and um, what they want the other person to be. And this one, one could argue, by the end of it, kind of shows you that no matter how ardently you feel that, you know, you feel something towards someone and you really make up your mind that you're going to have a particular kind of love story that doesn't mean that you can control the narrative for the other person they might be on a completely different trajectory so I think it's I think one thing about it you can you know we will we'll talk about some of the sort of details in the movie but I think that something it needs credit for is that it is trying to explore that theme of projection that you and me have talked about so much, haven't we? We've, we notice it in so many of these romantic comedies we've been watching for this podcast, how a lot of the time relationships aren't really based on people properly getting to know each other. And it's interesting that this one comes about five years after Love Actually, because I'd say Love Actually is sort of the peak <laughs> of that thing, isn't it? Where when we watched, we were kind of you know, really noticing how little dialogue there can be between some of the people that are supposedly finding the loves of their life, you know. And in this one, it it kind of really tries to tries to show you the the downside of that, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that, that that's the important thing it pushes is that 
it's while the, you do have those points of view, you also have the impact of that and, and projection and that, you know, in, in Love Actually and a lot of the other films, you know, where people meet what they think is their perfect person. And, and you know, the, the leads talk about this at the end, where, you know, the, they might not be the perfect person for them or it's the right time or fate and all these kind of other things that come into play. While there are hints of kind of mixed messages in there as well, and you can see the kind of frustration in Tom when they have the kiss in the copy room or when she refers to them as friends, but they've been doing stuff in showers after watching porno films together and things like that. And and then like the Ikea, I mean, the way they film the, the Ikea scenes, for example, yeah. it's, it kind of shows that, I mean, obviously a, a lapse in time has gone and, and everything else and the way that the animations go from sort of lighter to darker, depending on where the, the relationship is. But I think ultimately, I think for, for me, the kind of key scene in the film and it's really cleverly done is the re- reality and expectation scene yeah goes to her flat I, mean, I say we all most guys have probably had situations like this where you kind of expect an evening or an event or something to go a certain way I think everyone has I don't think that's a gendered thing at all I can I can assure you that just as many women will have had Certain expectations of an evening that have gone awry. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> Big relief. Um, but I think, um, you know, and, and you have these ideas and grand plans. That, oh, oh, yeah, it's going to be great. You know, we're going to spend the evening talking and it's going to be wonderful. And um, and the fact that they're filmed side by side and they kind of lapse then into the same ending, that scene. Um, I mean, that was that was fantastic. And I think you know, one that a lot of people can relate to in the fact that he's gone there expecting an evening to go this way and he wasn't prepared for the fact that she's engaged. He's going to be very much kind of, he's a guest, he's not the star of this show. I mean, it does put him in his place quite a lot. And I mean, it was fantastic. Well done. I love the Smiths. Sorry? I said I love the Smiths. You've, you've good taste in music. Thank you, Smith. Yeah. To die by your side is such a heavenly way to die. I love him. I actually think that he seems like quite a depressed person at the beginning of the movie. He doesn't seem happy in his job. I think that she spots in him that he has this passion for architecture. And when that party scene that you've referred to um, plays out and they have the expectations versus the reality. One thing that I spotted was that in the reality section, they have her saying to someone, you know, he could be a, a really good architect if he wanted to be. He's got that potential. That wasn't part of the fantasy. That was her actually saying that. And at that moment, you think, yeah, well, she's she, even though she's on her own, path and doing her own things she's has noticed something genuine about him that he then at the end of the movie goes and pursues and does become seemingly a happier person as a result of that but I don't know whether we see that he notices anything specific about Summer in that way that helps her to necessarily become a better person except I suppose ultimately for the fact that he tells her that there is such a thing as love 
And she, at the end, admits that he was right. She just didn't find it with him. And I suppose you could argue that he gave her that. Yeah. And I think as well, like she notices that about him. But what does he, I mean, does he make much effort to find out what she's doing now, to find out about her life? You know, it's all kind of come across him by chance as well. He doesn't seem to, and I suppose I'm guilty of that, where you don't ask the right questions you don't ask enough questions and and you come across as you're not particularly interested in um the other person and i think you know she's noticed this thing about him but you know she's left the job that they were were working together in but she's just gone off and you know he's he's doing things like actively avoiding her or you know she she is still this object of uh, almost like something he has to achieve and it is, you know, up up to a point, I have to have her as my girlfriend. Whereas she sees him as a person and goes into the relationship or, or not on, but, you know, very much eyes open and but, but quite open from her own point of view as well. It says, you know, she sees him as who he is and he sees her as a, a partner. But I, I don't think that, I mean, not saying the two are mutually exclusive, but I think that they're going into it and I think maybe maybe they just weren't the right people at the right time, but they probably had fun. And that's the end of the podcast. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Well, but you hit hit on something there, because does that mean potentially that infatuation with someone can in some way make you sort of less interested in who they really are? Because if you become fixated on someone and maybe if you're physically very attracted to them, you know, you might just get into that place where you think, I want to be that person's main person. I want them to call me boyfriend or girlfriend. I want, you know, I want that kind of attention from them. I want that kind of focus. Whereas if you're in Summer's position and you're in a more ambivalent sort of frame of mind and by ambivalent I don't mean that she doesn't like Tom I think she does but I don't think she's infatuated with him in the same way by any means it might make you a bit more clear-sighted about someone mightn't it it might actually make you kind of notice the things that they're struggling with or the things that they're passionate about the things that they're bored with you know you, you probably have a more elusive idea of them don't you y- yeah I agree I think it's it's easy to kind of lose sight of of the basics and actually getting to know that person because it becomes a target or a goal to be the boyfriend, the girlfriend, whatever. And you miss the getting to know them, the small bits, what you see, what you hear, what you learn and wanting to spend time with them because they're good company, not just because you are now mine, like over-exaggeration. But again, it's kind of, Mm it's it's nice to be able to learn new things and whether you're sharing a hobby or sharing an experience or t- telling each other things about your pasts or your things that you've done. You know, and when she tells him about her ex-partners, you know, you can kind of see his mind going to when she talks about the, the was it the Puma? Puma. Yes. His mind immediately goes to the big motorcycle. Um, but it's... You know, he becomes he because he's he's jealous about this stuff, and I know that's that's common. But um, yeah, I think I think there is an element there where you kind of have to find. I'm not saying it's wrong to be infatuated with people, but I think you kind of can't lose sight about beyond that. And like you said, 
I think uh, Summer seemed interested in Tom because she was she didn't have that kind of tunnel vision. Uh, really, she was able to kind of be a little bit more open. And who knows? Maybe she was infatuated with her husband, new husband, and that was why she went into that relatively quickly. But uh, well, let's see. When she talks about how she met her new husband, it sounds like there was a similar interaction with him, where she says that she was uh, in the deli reading Dorian Gray and a man came over and asked her about it which is quite similar to when she's in the lift with Tom and she says I love the Smiths when he's listening to the Smiths so both of them have their kind of reacted to people on the basis of how interested someone else is in the thing that you really like rather than you being you know from the get-go necessarily attracted to someone on the basis of something that they really don't think if you know what I mean so you sort of see a slight mirroring of your own tastes in someone else so I think it it touches it touches a little bit on our our own sort of sense of us wanting to feel as if we are inherently really interesting as individuals I'd like it if someone implies that to us I love what you're interested in that's really good yeah yeah exactly i mean that and also the thing of her going i love the smiths is a bit like high fidelity isn't it with um uh rob saying you know it's not what people are like it's what they like that's important and all of that kind of touches on that doesn't it too i mean there is quite a key scene i think in this one where when she's talking about her dreams and she's lying on the bed they kind of have a voiceover saying tom sort of realized that you know this was this was special what she was telling him and that he was the one that was going to get to hear it and other people weren't going to get to hear it and you really get the sense he's not actually really listening to what she's saying <laughs> he's just sort of feeling quite thrilled that she's confiding in him and only him you know? so it has that sense again of kind of you being but becoming kind of obsessed with being the person's main person rather than necessarily listening to the information they're giving you yeah because in another film you'd have heard you'd have seen that scene from her point of view and it would have been her telling him like, I don't know, the secret to eternal life or something like that. Yeah. And she goes, I'm, tell I'm telling him all this stuff and he's just sitting there looking blank. <laughs> Completely. Completely. I mean, I'd have to say, you know, if I was wearing a Joy Division t-shirt and someone came up saying, oh, I really love Unknown Pleasures and, and all that. And he's like, oh, you're the one, clearly. It does kind of make our generation look insufferable, this film, and so like, <laughs> there's like so much, so much sort of indie twee and kind of, yeah, man, we're above all of that kind of confected bullshit. You know, we don't need no greeting cards. We like our Joy Division. We like it. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I think Joy Division are great, but there's something about this this idea of a group of young people at that point of life. We're all we're all just so quirky and alternative. I suppose at the time, you know, you know, mu music. I mean, it's a whole different podcast now, but music is quite reactive. In that, the, the the kind of fondness for that music is probably a reaction to the fact that when he was younger, another alternative take or music would have been like I don't know, boy bands, girl bands, that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, and he's kind of oh god, no, I need something different, and and seeking solace in that. So, yes, uh, you, know, you kind of bury yourself in in a different, a different world, a different music, and like you said, you know, he seemed quite depressive um, at the start of the film, and obviously as the uh, the film time jumps quite a lot, I think at some 
you know, quite early on when we see his sister come along and give him the sort of pep talk and, and, and all that, you know, and again, there's another touch on another film we did, like the nice guys, where you've got the, the clever young girl there to yeah. give advice. Like, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you're saying about Tom and the music and you kind of think there is like that line from high fidelity. When we're comparing the two. It's like, did I listen to pop music because I was miserable or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? And that is so this film. And I'm surprised it would be nice if they were set in the same, same universe. Yes, completely. And I think that it, the part of the reason why the dance sequence in this movie is, is very effective is that when he is feeling euphoric after their first night together, actually all of that moodier music falls away and you hear Hall and Oates instead. I think that sequence is definitely a bit of a nod to Ferris Bueller. What do you think? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all choreographed and parading and everything. I mean, you can tell, you know, it's not it's not a million-mile stretch to see that the director came from directing music videos. Yeah, yeah. That music in, comes into this film anyway, but... Um, and he's on his own in that dance sequence, which I think is really key as well. It's not with her. It's a it's kind of a solo achievement for Tom. <laughs> yeah, look at me. I'm the man. I'm the man. Yeah, I'm just a love machine. And um, <laughs> and you know the, the dancing and the fact that everyone's high fiving him. All these passes yes. by the go. Yeah, we see. You're the man. You're the man. You did it. Well done. Yeah. You cl- you climbed Everest. It's interesting in that sequence, he's not wearing his hoodie. Sometimes I think that in uh, the scenes where you have him in his shirt and tie with a hoodie over it, like that scene with the two of them at the bar, which is a really interesting scene where um, he punches the guy. It's almost like his hoodie represents his kind of um, depressive self. Mm. And then in the scenes where he seems to get, you know, a little bit more confident, like in the dance sequence, like in the scene at the end of the job interview, the hoodie is gone and that's um you know i mean that was quite a thing i think at this point in the noughties in particular was kind of um you'd see quite a lot of guys wearing their hoodies sometimes over suit jackets or over um shirt and tie that that was kind of um a really quite a common look and um it's i quite like the way they use that to to great effect for tom as a character yeah, I mean, it was a time when men would wear knitwear and t- I say men, me would wear <laughs> knitwear and ties with boot cut jeans and tan shoes, like kind of either off to the rugby or something like that. But that, that very much the style of the time. And strange thing is about that is that the director went on to make Spider Man after this, one of the many Spider Man films, and the, the Andrew Garfield ones, where Peter Parker kind of is a superhero kind of thing. He wears hoodies and stuff as kind of is his disguise, I suppose. Is it disguise or the other way around? That sound like Kill Bill here. And <laughs> you're at the point where he's got his kind of, it's like an armour and the hoodie becomes his kind of defensive comfort blanket. Yes. Um, you know, like, um, is it Linus from Peanuts? And he's got that, you, you can tell he's got the hoodie so sad and he doesn't have it. That means he's feeling strong and he doesn't need it anymore. Um, and that scene with the guy in the bar where he, he punches him, it, it kind of weird because now looking back a, a year after the Oscars last year with uh, with Will Smith and there was a lot of dialogue 
after that incident around whether standing up and hitting a guy who's harassing or whatever to to your partner is that really as manly as you think it is yeah and obviously in this case tom punching that other fella it wasn't really a case of him exercising masculinity as such like this isn't him being a bully even so he felt like i must do this for my woman did he know well, I, I think it's more for him just to kind of, because he sat there the whole time looking down and looking like, where she was standing up on, for himself. Well, when he's coming on to her, he doesn't say anything. It's only when he says, this is your boyfriend, that's when the guy gets punched. Yeah, and then he goes, I did that for you. Yeah, and which is totally bullshit, isn't it? Because again, it's like she was being perfectly, you know, polite and stern and saying no. And he was just getting there going, um, so it wasn't protecting her honour. Or anything like that, honor like it's a knight. But he obviously thought he should kind of defend his actions and say, "Oh no, I was you know doing it for you. He was harassing you." Yeah. But at no point did he step in, or you know, I mean, I know sometimes you necessarily provoke a situation or not. I don't know, but you know, you can't turn around and sit there and be really sheepish and then go, "I am a man." Can't believe this is your boyfriend. That the ending and and also the, the other part of the ending where he goes off for the speaks to the the lady he's doing the job interview alongside, and th- there is this kind of thing where it's hard to think of a kind of like a moral of the story, but he's right. It's just people want to fall in love and get married. There isn't that kind of acceptance that not everyone does, not everyone wants it, not everyone finds it, not you know, and th- there is this that kind of thing that. For all of Summer's, they're not even quirks. They're just quirks to him that she doesn't want to settle down, that she is still trying to work out. You know, she doesn't want to go straight into labels and things like that. And they're not unusual. They're just things that he doesn't recognise because they're not what he feels. When she's talking to them in the bar, she she doesn't just say that she's not comfortable being anyone's girlfriend. She also says that she makes the point that they're young and that they're living in a really exciting city. So why not leave the serious stuff till later? There's also that as well, isn't it? It's not necessarily that he has to get his head around the idea of her never wanting to do that. She does kind of qualify a little bit with the fact that, you know, they're young. And I think that's another striking thing about her getting married so quickly at the end of the movie is you think, oh, when she met someone that she really liked, she she did take quite a serious step with them quite quickly. And she didn't she didn't she no longer kind of felt that, you know, she might want more time to to be on her own. The fair play, though, and you know, the, that that point in the bar where she's talking about her life, sort of view from that point of view, and she says, "I like being on my own." And they, the kind of guys, look at her like, "You're weird. What's wrong with you?" I like being on my own. Um, I think relationships are messy, and people's feelings get hurt. And who needs it? We live in one of the most beautiful cities in the world. We're young. Might as well have fun while we can and leave the serious stuff for later. Holy shit, you're a dude. She's a dude. Whoa, wait, so what happens if you fall in love? What? 
You don't believe that, do you? Believe what? It's love. It's not Santa Claus. Well, what does that word even mean? And even then, when you know they they kiss out, although they don't kiss, but when they're talking outside after they've bumped um, uh, Mackenzie into the cab, and she's trying to coax, you know, I like you, I like you, and he's trying to be really cool because he thinks he has to be casual about these things. Oh, he doesn't want to put himself out there. He's being a bit of a coward. That too. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of that. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think there there is a kind of there. He's very unsure of how, what to do, and he kind of defaults eventually to what he thinks he knows or what he knows. Whereas maybe with the benefit of age or experience or whatever or both, you might be able to take that step back or be a bit more objective about how you view the situation whether you go along with it whether you say no not for me thank you very much or you ride it out see where see where you go you might you might actually learn and like this person for who they are and not because of what they look like and i guess this film is one of those that i mean um summer is very much the uh, manic pixie dream girl in this isn't she or she's made out to be well, he wants her to be her, his manic pixie dream girl, and because it's so de Chanel, she sort of in terms of her image and how she's dressed, and you know her getting up and seeing Sugar Town and stuff. There's lots of there's lots of elements to her that play into that to that image, but but I think that is kind of deliberately intended to wrong foot you a bit because he thinks she's been sent. She's been sent from above to sort me out. And now life has meaning and everything's going to be fine because she's going to be my girlfriend. And, and, and I think we think as viewers at the beginning that, yeah, she will, she'll teach him to be wild and free and to dance in the rain and some um, Regina Spector song. And that then by the end we're kind of shown that that isn't necessarily why she's been introduced into his life. It's just because they started working at the same place at the same time. Ah, <laughs> oh, the beginning of most grand relationships. One thing about what we were saying before in terms of how they make assumptions about her because of her ambivalence about the relationship is that maybe also somehow makes the point that women sometimes because we're taught that it's only women who um get oh, what do they what do the kids say these days it's only women that catch feelings <laughs> <laughs> Some, sometimes even if even if you're in a situation where you might get the impression that a guy is quite attracted to you it won't necessarily occur to you that you could potentially hurt guy if you spend time with him or this or the other because we're told so repeatedly like no guys are guys guys just want sex guys are emotionally detached whereas it's women that have that problem and I wonder whether that's what happens to Summer in this is that she she makes a move on Tom by the photocopier and even though they've had that conversation where he's kind of talked about how he believes in love and she says that she doesn't really believe in it and um they'll have to agree to disagree she still does pursue a physical relationship with him doesn't she but it might be because it just hasn't really occurred to her that he could get that hurt by it no it's it's i suppose again from from her point of view and having not been a woman in her mid-20s recently it's it's <laughs> it's hard 
I guess from her point of view, because in her shoes, she is who she is, and she doesn't have the same worldview that he does. And I'm not saying you're a product of your upbringing or anything like that, but she does her own thing and maybe just doesn't understand what he'd be like. And it's not a blame thing at all. It's just, you know, maybe she just doesn't see that the harm in it. And I think not necessarily a kind of ignorance is bliss, but the fact is that she may be of the assumption that she can do that and not have to worry because he's a guy who doesn't have feelings and yet we're made it's made perfectly clear that he has too many if any well that's the thing because he starts from such a place of you know when she says do you like me is that true that you do and he's like yeah well whatever you know maybe is a friend and this that the other you know perhaps if from the get-go he had approached her and asked her out boldly in the way that he does at the end with autumn she would have, you know, then thought of it a little bit more as something that could potentially get out of hand because he wouldn't have been skirting around his feelings so much. I mean, I do think that we're that we're we're shown about Tom that it's not necessarily great if you always make it the other person's job to to do all the initiating of something and that if you do that you can run into trouble because if you're so scared to express your feelings at every point then you can't expect the other person to be a mind reader and then you might be kind of in the middle of a physical relationship with that person at that point will be the point where you start to get very emotional about it and the other person will think like oh god well at the beginning you just said you like me as a friend you didn't even ask me out in a proper way or you know so i suppose yeah shows us that we should all be saying what we want more yeah and maybe when if this was set when they were 10 years older, they might actually be sort of confident enough in their own skin to kind of just put it out there early on. You know, I am interested in this, take it or leave it. Or I am able, you know, and, and just be, <laughs> I know what I want more and be able yeah, to Yeah, well, she's certainly more. like that, isn't she? Yeah. yeah. And be able to communicate that better. And this is, yeah. Like, yeah, of course, mostly him. Definitely coming back to it now. 10 plus years after watching it the first time. I think it's definitely easier. And of course, with, with our little, don't you want me hat on? Hats aren't, <laughs> hats aren't available yet. The t-shirts are. That we, can, it's easier to look, and, and I guess we're more attuned to looking at both sides rather than, I guess, if you're watching this for the first time in a cinema or on DVD or Netflix or whatever, you can just sit there and let it wash over you. And it can be, it's his story we're in his world we're just guests whatever but because we're looking at it with new eyes and different eyes and a different perspective we're looking at it from both sides of the coin where we're taking her feelings into account because we don't hear the narration in her head and we're not told you know this isn't 500 days of tom which would be a really rubbish title <laughs> it has all of those references to the graduate which we've We've covered on this podcast as well on that whole thing of him misreading the ending of The Graduate and that sort of what was part of what set him on this track in terms of his expectations and that the two of them go and see it and she's crying at the end and you get the sense that she's coming to the realisation that even though she really likes Tom, they're going to have to break up. And, and yeah, it's a, The Graduate is another one, I think, that when you, you revisit it, you see 
you see different things in it and you interpret it differently depending on what point of life you're at. I mean, one thing about this one that I thought was quite striking was the chemistry between the two of them, I think, really effectively, and I think this is entirely deliberate, it really effectively feels like more of a friendship than it does a sexually charged relationship. What do you think? Yeah, and I think that was when, because that time had passed since I'd seen it, when they did hook up in the shower I kind of forgot that because I'm I was so used to them being kind of friends or are they more than friends that kind of thing and then all of a sudden they're oh they're having sex and and then they're not and then they're kind of in Ikea doing couple stuff but then then so there's hints of it but again they're not kind of rampant with each other they're not kind of hands-on all over each other no i mean you can have you can still have be having sex with someone that you don't have particularly chemistry with i mean that's the thing we know that they have slept together but i think just that's why at the end when the when the resolution is that they're going to be friends with each other it feels kind of correct because we've watched some movies where if you put Daniel Craig and Eva Green on a train together, these two don't feel like they're going to be bloody good shums at the end of the film, do they? That you feel as if there's something else there between them. And yeah, with this one, it it, it feels mu- much more kind of an innocent two two people that want to unburden themselves to each other, but and may try a bit of shower sex and this that the other, but it's not as if there's a sort of burning hot passion between them, you know. What's wrong with liking Ringo Starr? That's the thing. He gives her quite a hard time about some of these things, doesn't he? He's quite snobbish. I mean, he's a bit like Rob from High Fidelity. Oh, we said it again. <laughs> he really is. He really is. I think that's that's something that definitely comes across. I like how you also get the feeling that he's quite into the suffering that comes from the relationship, don't you? Like at the beginning where, um, when his sister comes in, you see him smashing plates and then they have the kind of nouvelle vague references in the middle of the movie where, you know, there's a lot of kind of this idea of oh, the, the misery of heartbreak and you can imagine him kind of making a, a compilation CD, can't you, of all the, all the sort of best heartbreak <laughs> Top guitar five. songs and stuff yeah exactly so I think it has that about it too which I think is quite true maybe of how you are in your 20s with some of these relationships where a lot of it is to do with the elation then followed by sort of devastation when something goes wrong and that actually there's there isn't that much kind of normal living sometimes with with these particular ones, you know, like it'd be different if they'd moved in together or anything like that and they'd had a bit more sort of normal domesticity. But I think that's something that's quite good about this movie is that it shows you uh, the kind of relationship that a lot of people have in their life. Like, you know, some people just have a series of relationships a little bit like this one. It only goes to a certain point. I think a lot of people will be able to relate to these kind of ones, but they're not as represented as you might think. I, I suppose because it all, it's inevitably going to have a sadness to it, isn't it? I mean, I think that's why they compared this one a little bit to Annie Hall, because Annie Hall's one of those ones where it feels bittersweet because he's he's kind of reflecting on, on something that didn't necessarily last that long, but had quite a big effect on his life. He's so quick 
in those early scenes after he's met Summer to talk about her with his friends. I mean, I, I can't remember, is there a male version of the Bechtel test? Because all he does with his friends is talk about Summer or his relationship <laughs> with Summer. No, they, don't good... talk, yeah. they don't talk about sports or cars or anything else. <laughs> they just talk about things. And obviously they've got the awkward scene where he's talking to his friend or the friend comes in and starts making some lewd comments and all of a sudden, oh, here's Summer. That's a very good point because I don't think it passes the Bethel test this film at all. But as you say, maybe there should be a, another kind of category of the Bethel test where you go, okay, there might not be two women that talk to each other during the course of the film at all. But, you know, perhaps if all the other scenes are about about a woman where people are, to, even if they are calling her skank repeatedly and so on and so forth, then maybe that qualifies as a different thing. Where is this karaoke bar where they have where you can get up and sing Pixies songs and the Clash songs? I mean, I've never been to one like that. No, I don't know if there's sort of is it Lucky Voice that chain in in, in London that do. I don't know. It's been so long since I've done karaoke. I guess it's all digital now, and you can probably access any song like Spotify. Oh right, oh, okay, yeah. I, mean, well, I, I, I was zooming, but back in the old back in the old days, there used to be like a CD or something, but. Uh, your man with the mobile disco would come around with a sort of pamphlet of what you could have. Yeah, the wild, wide variety, didn't they? Um, yeah, well, that's what I mean. They're, they're very cool choices that people are able to make here. I mean, at this point in time, I would have been going to bars with karaoke and you just would have heard Angels by Robbie Williams and Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me on repeat, pretty much. Someone, it's like a Barry from EastEnders doing Mustang Sally. I mean, like the date that he goes on afterwards with that um, the girl, and he just ends up unloading on her, the poor girl, that summer. The, I'm amazed she stuck yeah. around so long. Yes, I, I, I was struck by that too. You think you wouldn't, I don't think you go to a second location with this guy. I don't think that's going to happen. I thought that that was quite an interesting sort of spin on the the Emily Mortimer, Hugh Grant date in Notting Hill. I thought, you know, this, this is the thing. If you, if, you get, if you get set up with someone and they're actually in the middle of heartbreak, this is a more realistic depiction of how that date will go versus that one that she has with Hugh Grant where he's terribly polite and, you know, it's just a bit sort of reserved. I liked this girl. Yeah, I loved her. What'd she do? She took a giant shit on my face. Literally. Literally? Not literally. It's disgusting. Jesus. What's the matter with you? The idea that working at a greeting card company is a real dead-end job, I thought that was quite a sort of mid-noughties idea as well, because I think that now that actually looks like quite an interesting, creative, quite cool thing to be doing in the grand scheme of things, don't you think? Whereas they're all sort of treating it as like the ultimate, ultimate boring thing someone could be doing, like they're working at Wernham Hog or something. I was about to say that the woman with the cards with the cats reminded me of Phyllis from the, the American version, but uh, 
I mean, the job must pay well for him to have an apartment like that. I mean, there's some serious square footage in his place. Yeah. Um, writing greeting cards sounds like quite an amusing, fun job. Um, totally, totally. When I saw, I remember thinking, why are they all acting like this is a, like a terrible job? You're getting paid to come up with stuff. And sure, I'm sure it could be frustrating like any other job. But yeah, it's still... It's as you say. It's a it's a bit like the job that Chandler goes and gets at the at the end of Friends, isn't it? I mean, you know, the, you've got some nice little trivia bits in there. Like the the boss of the greeting cards company is um in real life is married to Jennifer Grey, so the she's like the wind song is about her. Yeah, I was. Oh, I was also going to make that point, Rich. Sorry, we're on, we're on the same we're on the same dirty dancing page. <laughs> At all times. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's quite funny as well. Is that he's wearing all these Joy Division um, t-shirts and he's into the Smiths and stuff. But when he thinks about summer, he hears Patrick Swayze singing "She's Like the Wind." So like, yeah, that's that. That feels honest to me. And I think that a lot of people of our age hear power ballads when we're at our most besotted. I think so. <laughs> love, love, love will tear us apart, but it'll also give us Patrick Swayze singing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's it's the you need you need the two to sit side by side in perfect harmony. I tell you what, though, that T-shirt he was wearing in the record shop when the love will tear us apart. That T-shirt looked far too new. Like, yeah, I think that's that right. New. Yeah, that he's clearly gone out and bought that to try and impress her. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, I love Joy Oh, yeah, I've got the T-shirt and everything. Quick, uh, Amazon Prime. Da, da, da. <laughs> Do you remember the bit in Before Sunrise where Jesse is talking about how he's just broken up with that girl, or rather she gave him the push when he went to visit her, and that's where he's, why he's on his way back, and that's how he bumps into Celine, and, and he says that thing about when you're, you know, when, when you're being dumped by someone, you realise how little they're thinking about you is how little you thought about the people that you dumped. Mm. And I, I, I always think that's a very, it's very astute observation from Jesse in that. And this movie kind of sheds light, doesn't it, on that experience? Because one scene that I think is really great is when they go for those pancakes and she says, this isn't really working. And you can see him just being hit with a ton of bricks by this and just thinking, oh my God, what the f am I going to do? And he he's like looking at his pancakes and he can't eat them and she's eating them and going like, oh, these are so good. Oh, I'm so glad we did this. this these are delicious. It is, it, is, it is different from a lot of the movies that we've covered in terms of its mood when it comes to romantic movies, I mean. I think it does effectively convey the the mess of heartbreak and resentment and all of that stuff, doesn't it? I think so, because again, you know, sometimes when you watch a film or show and a relationship ending is, is expected or there's a trigger, whether it's like a, a cheating or a, something actually happens, where in this, because they're in different places and coming at it at different times, and the fact that it gets to the end of the relationship, he doesn't see it coming. And then she drops that on him. Because then, you know, that that's 
unfortunately probably quite common where I think people, especially towards the end of a relationship or at different stages, whether they see it coming or they don't, but the person doing the dumping or being, co- you know, whatever, however it comes out, has already either made that decision or is ready to make the decision. So then yeah. at the end of the relationship or post the relationship, you know, if you're still in contact or whatever, you're still in different places. So one person might be in a state of shock and the other person's already kind of moving on. You know, whether it's they're onto a new relationship or they're moving house or whatever it happens to be. And it's yeah. just it's just such a big point that you don't really think about because you know, you don't get that with happily ever after. And this is probably quite realistic, you know, whether it's over pancakes or however it happens to be. But you do see these films where where a dumping or an end of a relationship happens. And of course, to one person it usually is you know, in a worse place than the other because they're not expecting it. And I think here it's it's done quite well because, you know, although I, f- I do feel sorry for, oh, we'll talk about it later and then gets back to pancakes. It's like, well, you've opened your mouth now. So you've started, so you'll finish. Get on with it. But, um, <laughs> but still, it, I mean, the pancakes look great. Those sausages look awful. Yeah, the sausages did look awful. Mm. I mean, what, what do you think? Is that something that, I mean, from 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 the other point of view, do you, do you reckon that it must be hard to sit there and eat pancakes watching that other person? Well, I, I don't know. I, su- I suppose sometimes if, if people are, are kind of that caught up in their own perspective, then they can be maybe, you know, indulging in a bit of displacement activity. They, they'd rather not kind of focus on the pain that they're causing the other person. So they busy themselves um, by, you know, eating a, a whole load of sausages or or kind of going and going and on a ten mile run or what or whatever it is. I mean, I think that sometimes when people are trying to do something difficult, and that means you know a certain amount of confrontation or putting someone else through a lot of pain, they have a tendency sometimes to just try and sort of distract themselves as much as possible because otherwise they might not have the courage, I suppose, to kind of rip off that plaster. So. Um, but it's certainly, I think, in that moment, my my sympathy would be with the person who can't think about eating the pancakes because that is a, it's a horrible feeling. I think everyone can relate to that moment. Mm. But one thing that I think is really hopeful about how it concludes, and I mean, you know, I think that possibly with, with this one, there's still a little bit too much emphasis on, you know, now that we've we've seen Tom evolve and become a better person that should be our main focus and priority rather than thinking a little bit more about summer because i think at the end of that scene at the bench she she doesn't look she looks quite emotional about their relationship i think and there's a little bit of conflict there even though i you know she does say that she was sure of it with her husband in the way that she wasn't with tom but i think we can still see that you know she's kind of gone and done something relatively impulsive and you know our focus is still meant to be on Tom and I don't know how I completely feel about that but one thing that's nice is the way when he does run into Autumn before he goes into the into the interview the way she says to him like oh you know have I seen you at that place and he says yeah I I do go there but I don't think I've seen you and and she says oh you must not have been looking then and it has that 
thing about it where you realize that if you have become completely preoccupied by something or someone then it just does mean that you don't really look around you enough and you don't kind of pick up on the detail of what could be passing you by and that when you do let go of something it means that there is an opportunity to pick up something else did you roll your eyes when she said my name is autumn yes I, <laughs> I, did you hear my eyes rolling He's rewarded, isn't he? I mean, he goes on this little journey and then he's rewarded by meeting another gorgeous woman, as the men in these films always are. God bless Hollywood. Yeah, oh God bless Hollywood. That song that plays it out, She's Got You High, is the mo is such a kind of mid-noughties kind of peak indie twee track. It's very of its time, isn't it? Very of its time, yes. <laughs> Oh, the late 2000s. Gotta love them. Well, we're, we're, we're sort of obligated to have fondness for them, I think, because we were there. So there you go. We're stuck with them. Enough time has passed. She's got you high and you don't even know yet. She's got you high and you don't even know yet. The sun's in the sky, it's warming up your bare legs. And you can't deny you're looking for the sunset. She's well, as we fire up the karaoke machine and order another stack of pancakes, we leave you with a reminder that it's these movies, these pop songs, they're responsible for all the lies, the heartache, everything. And thank goodness, otherwise we wouldn't have this podcast. I've been Kat. I've been Rich. This has been Don't You Want Me. It's turned so see-through. Open your mind.